Good afternoon and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Amelie Dada, and today we are here at the lovely Macquarie University with Melina Georgiasakis, um, who is a public health researcher with specialties in infectious disease, um, diseases and um, immunisation. Um, she has a Bachelor of Science with Honours, um, which she followed with an MPH at Sydney University, and then went on to a PhD at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research. Um, she now works as a research and policy manager at the Booper Health Foundation, and she's also the founder of Franklin Women, which is one of my favourite health um, organisations in New South Wales. So hopefully she can tell us a bit about that today. Welcome, Melina. Well, well thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> We're both doing well today. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited. Thank you. For, thank you for coming. I'm not doing very well either. Um, so how did you first get your start in science? What first interested you in the field? So my start in science was probably like most people who followed a scientific career and that was all the way back in high school. But if you fast forward five years or so, my start in public health was probably a little bit back to front. I actually did my Masters of Public Health after my PhD. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so, um, but most people look at the qualifications and think someone does an honours year and a Masters and a PhD. Yeah. But I actually did my PhD in lab-based research. So I did a very traditional career pathway. I uh, did my Bachelor of Science and then I did Honours and a PhD looking at novel vaccine candidates for Group A Strip. And that was all in Queensland, so I'm a Queensland girl born and bred. And after that very traditional career pathway in the lab, I was um, luckily exposed through my research in a whole other area of scientific endeavour, which was public health, which as a lab-based scientist, if any lab-based scientists are listening, um, you quite often don't get much exposure to yeah. it. So I was sort of developing the vaccines in the lab and because group A strep has uh, um, quite, well the disease burden is in primarily in developing country settings and so that real public health side of things was how you can deliver vaccination programs and it was that exposure um, that really made me think about um, the bigger picture. And so after, what I think, a four-year PhD in the lab and then a postdoc, I started thinking about how I can um, move from lab-based research and move into public health. What was it like making a decision after you'd already done sort of work in a specific field? Was that a big decision? Yes, it was a really big decision and a hard decision, I think. Uh, when I ended up moving from my role at QIMR to the National Centre for Immunisation Research, uh, it was almost, I'd say, a year after I decided that I no wanted, no longer wanted to do lab-based research. But it was a really hard thing because I guess you've invested a large amount of yeah. your time. Um, the public have invested a large amount of money. Your supervisors have invested a large yeah. amount of their um, intellectual capacity into you. And so I almost felt like a bit of a failure that I was leaving the lab and um, moving into a different role. So it took a long time for me to come to terms with making the jump. That's certainly not the first time I've heard that, but mm. um, a few other people that I've spoken to have said the same thing, but they said they never looked back and they listened to the invoice and it was the right thing to do. Do you feel the same way? Definitely. <laughs> I, I, um, I don't miss the poor mice in the lab that, <laughs> <laughs> that I was doing research with, um, and although it was perfect at the time and it gave me so much broad experience. Like, I think what I, what I have done in the policy side of things, in public health policy around vaccinations, I wouldn't um, have really really grappled with how important that is until I had done the lab-based side and that technical expertise is, um, yeah, was invaluable actually. Yeah. So, so still complimentary to the work you're doing No now. regrets, but um, for me it was just a natural evolution and most of my colleagues still work in the lab um, and I have a really good relationship with them. 
and um, they're actually they're excelling in that area. But for myself, I knew the sort of skills that I had uh, would be better used in probably a public health research setting. So definitely no looking back. Very glad I made Excellent. the job. And was your first um, job at the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance? Yeah, it was. So I um, moved to NCS, I think, in 2010. And interestingly enough, I guess, when people look at someone else's career trajectory, they have a look at all this list on a piece of paper and it all looks so mm. simple and fluid and it was just a natural progression. But uh, taking the job at NCS actually was spurred on by a personal situation. So my husband, now husband and I, were doing long distance Sydney-Brisbane for six years. Wow. Yeah, long time. And um, I guess it's important to reflect that, you know, your career is one only one part of your life and there's a lot of else, other things going on. So mm. uh, he has a business in Sydney, so I had to think about where I could go. And I um, to make that decision, I really had a list of non-negotiables. And so for myself at that stage, my non-negotiable was I wanted to continue infectious disease research yeah. and preferably vaccine research. And so I literally spent one weekend writing down, Googling like crazy all the research or for profit or not for profit or corporate organizations that do um, vaccine infectious disease research. And I approached many of them. Um, and when I found NCS, I wrote to the director, Professor Peter McIntyre, and sent my CV and told him my story. And um, luckily there were some opportunities coming up at NCS that he suggested that I go for. and. I guess the rest is history. Oh, he must have loved that. He was here yesterday being interviewed and he was saying one of his favourite things about public health is watching people grow and develop and helping to foster that. So yeah. I think you're a good example of that. Yeah, yeah no, at the, I've been at and um, until I recently went on maternity leave end of last year. So that was six years and it, just the amount I learnt at that organisation coming in as a lab-based researcher. And then it was a year there in their policy team when I actually decided to do my Masters of Public Health because I just got ex exposed to one facet of it and mm. it just I wanted to know and learn and connect with other people in that area. So that's what made me do my Masters of Public Health. So what kind of work did you do when you were there? Uh, diverse, but also very focused. So I guess um, what you would have heard from Peter is NCS has a number of teams so it's the National Centre for Immunisation Research, but they do everything from epidemiological research mm. to social research to clinical research, but they also have a policy team. So the policy team's role is to provide technical advice uh, to the Commonwealth Department of Health around national immunisation policies and primarily what vaccines are funded on the national immunisation program. So you get to see real impact of oh, what you're doing. Real impact. And... Um, I think, you know, that was one of the most rewarding things for me at the role at NCS is so I had very challenging time and very rewarding time. I think the biggest challenge for me coming from a lab-based or just doing my PhD, I guess, is that I was no longer the researcher because I was doing a policy yeah. job. And you leave your PhD where you, what, spend four years researching one bug and in my <laughs> instance it was one protein on one bug and it was my everything and no one else in the world knew anything about it as much as I did and then I moved to NCS and if you think about the number of vaccine preventable diseases mm. and I think there's 16 um, diseases that we vaccinate in Australia on the nationalization program and our team was providing policy advice around these diseases and 
you know, you can't know everything about every single one of those yeah, bugs yeah. and all of their proteins and all of their vaccines. Vaccines. So, you know, I had to go from knowing everything about something very small to knowing enough and the right things about a lot. And so that was a real different change of my mindset for me and it took a while for me to really come to terms with getting that right and not feeling like I was a failure if I didn't know as much as I knew about group A strep about yeah. everything else. Uh, so we might move on to Franklin Women now yes. um, and then maybe talk about Boopa, sorry Boopa Health Foundation. Um, so through, let me start that again, um, so you founded Franklin Women yes. um, which is an organisation, well you can tell us about yeah. it but um, I am a member and it's um, one of the things that I knew of you before I met you and I really look up to you for setting it up. So maybe you could talk us through what um, Franklin Women does and how you came to sort of set it up and what your sort of aims for the organisation are. Yeah, definitely. So Franklin Women is, a, I guess, a passion project. Um, it takes up a lot of my time, so I think it needs a different title with a lot more gravitas than a passion project. <laughs> but it's, it started when I was at NCS, and I guess it was because I made that jump from a lab-based career to a public health career. And I was at a time where I changed roles, which was very hard. Uh, I moved from a primarily medical research institute to a hospital-based setting. Mm. And I was exposed to all these different roles in the sector. So I was dealing with clinicians, with governments, with um, pharmaceutical companies, with policy advisors, with epidemiologists. So all these amazing people in the mix who were doing just literally inspiring research. It really was making a difference. Uh, and I was like, wow, there is absolutely no way, um, other than if it was in a conference in your very specific field, to really connect with people doing health and medical research across the sector. Yeah. No matter what institute, organisation, role, there was no other way to do that. It was only really research topic specific. And I also was coming to terms with the fact that a number of my female colleagues were leaving various reasons there's a lot of structural and cultural um, barriers to females progressing in mm. science and I guess these transitions were a lot harder um, for women and a lot of them felt that they didn't have any transferable skills and if they had career breaks for caring responsibilities mm. it just added extra barriers they were no longer competitive and so many of them were dropping out so I just decided to see if other people wanted what I wanted and that was a platform that I could connect with other women working in the field and I started Franklin Women which had that primary aim and I think the first event we had was a networking event and it sold out with 100 women from around Sydney attending and it was awesome. So we all met in the city, there was wine and canapes and we were learning new skills about how to strategically network and the room was buzzing and yeah, it's been going for three years ever since. So everyone does think the way you think. Yeah, there really was a space for yeah, it. Yeah, there was a gap. So what are the, some, of, some of the programs that you're running at the moment? The Franklin Women, we have two initiatives um, that we have rolled out. So our core business, I guess, is delivering events. And our events are about um, bringing women together, but also learning skills outside of the technical sciences, which are really important for career progression, but we have no opportunity to learn. So that's our day-to-day -day sort of activities. And the initiatives are a scholarship. So we offer a carer scholarship, and that is to provide travel um, support to a researcher who is also the primary carer but that travel support is not really for them to attend a conference because there's um, 
many ways for us to get support. Mm. It's to provide financial support of care for the child. Because, oh, that's great. Yeah, quite often, um, you know, there's all this these talk about making sure that there's equal representation on panels and among speakers, but even though if you may invite female researchers, it's not just about um, themselves trying to get there. If they're also a primary carer, it becomes a large financial and logistical burden to pay for a family to travel or for additional care. So that scholarship's been going for two and a half years now and um, yeah, it's been making a real difference to some lives. Excellent. Yeah, it's really rewarding to see. And um, the mentoring program oh, yes. started this year? Mentoring program. We launched our mentoring program. So, um, yeah, I'm very excited about that because, um, you know, any of the initiatives that we introduce, we really want to make sure that we're value adding. So, everyone's a volunteer at Franklin Women, and there's enough going on in the sector that um, we wanted to uh, fill a gap. And while there might be internal mentoring programs, there is really nothing that connects a mentee and a mentor at different organizations. Yeah. And that has a number of benefits. One is that, you know, you get a whole different perspective and different career connections, but also there's that confidence that comes with it um, as well. And, you know, you can talk about things that you probably might not feel as confident or comfortable talking within, with an immediate colleague. Mm-hmm. So that launched this year and, uh, yeah, 12 medical research and health uh, research organisations are taking part and 50 participants, so it's very exciting. So I'll report back next year. Well, I can give some preliminary reports, oh, which yay. are that I have. We have two people here um, at Macquarie that I um, work in my team and one's a mentor and one's a mentee and it's been very positive feedback from oh, the initial, uh, from the beginning. <laughs> Unofficial evaluation. <laughs> Um, and so if someone, just one last thing on Franklin, yeah. so if someone, because I remember going to my first event, mm-hmm. someone's listening and they think that sounds really cool, but they might be a bit nervous about meeting new people or mm-hmm. networking. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, like what can they expect? And also, do you have any sort of tips for like walking into a room where you just don't yeah. know anyone? Because that still terrifies me. Yeah, me too. I tell you what, like for someone who started a professional network, I, and I'm, you know, I'm quite chatty and people think I'm extroverted, but if you put me in a conference with no one I know, like I'm the person who... You know, goes to the toilet like 12 times in the morning tea break. <laughs> I do that too. Because <laughs> I don't want to be awkwardly standing there because I don't know anyone. Um, well, I guess, you know, what we really try and do with the Franklin Women events is make it fun, not a chore. And so we do it in a very social environment. It's usually a really cool venue, good food involved. And everyone there is for the same reason. And that's what's yeah. really refreshing, I guess. You know, we have institute directors at Franklin Women events, we have PhD students, we have communications, postdocs, everyone in that room sort of leaves their egos behind, they're leaving their titles at the door and everyone is just there because most of the instances they're female, although we have a lot of men crushing our events now because the topics <laughs> are so great <laughs> and we that. welcome it. Um, but also they're there for the exact same reason. Yeah. They want to connect and they want to learn from each other and they want to really make a difference and it's just so fun. And my biggest tip is what I started to do now. I just walk up to someone and say, hi, I'm Melinda, and, you know, talk about which we got told in our networking event not to straight away ask about what you do but oh. talk about something like you know how did you find a park here or you know connect on a different level and and then that leads to awesome rabbit warren conversation and it always that's, ends up at work yeah no, that's a good idea because i always ask that question first mm. and there's not really m- no. many places to go okay yeah. thanks that's a good tip. sometimes feels a bit you know what do you do what do you do okay we know now. Yeah, yeah. and now I'll go to the next person. I clearly should have come to the networking <laughs> event. Look up our networking event. <laughs> 
Um, and so now you're working um, for the Booper Health Foundation, and I don't know much about your role there, so maybe you could give us a bit of uh, background and let us know what you're doing there. Yeah, so this is a very new role for myself as well. Uh, I just have finished a year of maternity leave, and I took that as an opportunity to really take on some self-reflection about the skills that I've acquired over the seven years, six, seven years I was at NCS and also the skills that I would like to build and really where I feel I can make the most difference um, to the health sector. And I think it's been a natural progression for me leaving the lab and being very technical focused to moving to my policy role where I've really been able to be involved in implementing some really big picture national policy changes around infectious diseases and seeing that happen, um, which I've just found so rewarding. And I just, with Franklin Women now, have realised that I have this natural tendency to enjoy bigger picture um, aspects of health research and public population health. And so this Bupa role has come about um, because the Health Foundation, so it is actually the leading charitable foundation that in Australia that has a specific focus on health. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it, it's excellent. And so they um, fund large sums of money um, into health and public health research with the aim of improving population well-being. Obviously, that aligns with Bupra yeah. as a corporate organisation as well, but this is a complete philanthropic arm. And they have a very small but passionate team that has just done an amazing job. I think the inception since 2005 and invested 20 plus million dollars in health and medical research. That's amazing. That makes me want to change my health fund. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, like, Sorry, me. it's I, not a Emma, plug yeah. for Booba, but <laughs> we need a little um, uh, yeah, bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I already was a Booba person, but <laughs> I didn't even know about this. But I guess, you know, they're really wanting to become thought leaders in this space. And and really drive the agenda and look at where there are gaps. You know, there's been a lot of talk about um, funding of health and medical research and the NHMRC have made some big changes. Mm. There's also the Medical Research Future Fund and there's this real discussion about translation of research and actually more partnerships and collaboration and bringing public, private, um, academic, hospitals, every, industry together and, you know, really addressing this wicked healthcare um system and health funding crisis and I guess you know they're really looking at making some policy changes and informing how they fund their research and that's this new role which I'll be taking on so it's only been like day four for me but I'm very oh, I didn't realize it was that <laughs> yeah, very day four so uh, once again I'll come back and report okay year. excellent but, yeah, no, I'm very excited because I think this is where I'm I naturally am going and I'm excited about the opportunity to once again you know, look at a different aspect of public health research. Yeah, and I know I've said this to you before we were recording, but um, it's something I haven't thought about before, sort of private industry working with research, but it's something they talk about a lot here at Macquarie, mm. and I, I really think it's something that I want to sort of learn more about and see where it's going. Mm. How do people apply, like, through, or does people put out um, things they're interested in? Yeah, so a part of um, this new focus, they are reviewing their granting uh, mechanism I guess but all the information is on the Booper Health Foundation okay, website and great. they also have an early career researcher award 
and they have a number of partnerships that are already in place so you can have a look at their website okay. um, maybe we'll put that link on um, yeah, the yeah, website definitely and, and have a look at the foundation and uh, the different opportunities that they have and there's an opportunity to pitch projects but i think they'll be announcing a um, a new mechanism coming, I guess, end before the end of the year. Oh, excellent. See, I learned something today for myself. Uh, so we might go on to some more general questions yes. um, that we are talking about before. Um, so what are you most proud of in your, sort of your career so far? Uh, a specific project or the courage to make the changes you've made? Sorry, yeah. I might have stolen your answers. No, that's <laughs> them. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I guess there is two. Um, one is project-based, and that was when I was at NCS. So uh, very early on when I joined, I joined the team that was supporting the Australian Technical Advisor Group on Immunisation. That's the peak advisory body um, to the government around immunisation. I was supporting their Human Papillomavirus Working Party. And this was at the time where the vaccine was on the NIP for adolescent girls but it still wasn't on the immunisation funded for boys, basically. And there was new data on the vaccine use in males. And so my sole um, project was to put together the policy advice um, to inform Intagi's decision around whether or not they would recommend this vaccine be funded on the NIP to males. And I think it was two years from beginning to end that I was working on this project and leading this project. And I think we had the submission for the vaccine to be funded on the NIP from the company. And we provided, did all the review of all the evidence, put together the policy advice, deliberated by ATAGI, and then it was introduced on the NIP to adolescent boys with a catch-up. And then I think within um, a very short amount of time after, we were already seeing data um, showing the reduction of vaccine HPV-type associated general warts in the population. And, you know, for myself, coming from the lab where we, you know, you just do research and improve on this research, but it's a long time before you see any immediate mm. impact of it. Um, and, you know, someone had already done the hard work, Ian Fraser and his team, with a HPV vaccine. And then to come in at this stage and really do a large amount of work and seeing it adopted by government and implemented so quickly because of the public health benefit and then so quickly see a population benefit, like that was definitely a career highlight for myself to be involved in and leading that from the technical side and we got a you know my first lancet publication out of it and oh, so congratulations yeah, it's it was, still on my list of things yes, to do I know. <laughs> well that i've uh, you know done and dusted on that one there will be no more i'm sure <laughs> but you know it was just it was very rewarding and to see this translation of research into you know not only policy but also benefit was just amazing to see firsthand oh you should be so proud of yeah that. it was awesome loved and learned so much uh, and i guess the other is franklin women yeah just giving something to go you know i've never done anything like this before i know business experience no idea if anyone would come or like it or what i was even doing and you know to see it you know grow to where it is today and that you know the feedback is it's making a genuine difference it's yeah it's been very rewarding. that would certainly be my feedback <laughs> thank you <laughs> Um, I had a question, but it went out of my head because I was mistakes. <laughs> engaged. Uh, yes, it wasn't mistakes, but we can touch on mistakes. Um, so we were talking before we started um, the podcast uh, about a question that a few people have asked me since I've started the podcast and I've had in my head, but I have been a bit too shy to ask, um, which is something around mistakes. So in your um, career, have you made sort of a mistake that at the time you just thought was catastrophic, you're beating yourself up and then you've either learnt from it or been able to fix it? Um, and how do you sort of go about that learning process or when mistakes do happen yeah 
That is a very good question and... Something I struggle with a lot. Yeah, and I think everyone does and, you know, anyone who says that they don't is lying or just hasn't <laughs> come to terms with it. But I, if I'm honest, I would say I, I make mistakes every day. It's just, I guess, the severity, for lack of a better word, um, that's different. And I think it would... It would probably be since I started Franklin Women, which has sort of helped me reconcile how I deal with them in that... You know, when you do something on the side and your work is very busy and you have a life which is very busy, everyone's very, very busy, um, I guess the best way that I've dealt with them myself is just to take a step back and realise that however big a deal I think it is, it never actually is, and just to take a step back. And also I've realised that mistakes that I have made and I get really disappointed about, I'm actually the only one in most of the cases who realises that they're a mistake. They're an I. I'm trying to achieve an idealistic view of something and I think that it hasn't gone to plan but I'm really the only person who knows and so it's really being able to take a step back and realize when it actually matters and when it doesn't to just not beat yourself up about it and realize that you're just human like everyone else and when it does matter own it and and learn from it I guess when it matters more is probably you know things to do with research um you know when I was supporting a target to be something that at the time would be catastrophic or like if you would even believe you know we'd be sending papers around for this very important meeting and we didn't attach the paper with attachment b and and oh my god and you know when you're in that bubble yeah. and this is what you've all been working on and these very important people receiving it and you sent around the papers without attachment b and chicken lick in the sky is going to fall in and it's you know I've really been able to realize now that I subscribe to done is better than perfect. Get it done and do it the best at your ability. And if something doesn't quite hit the mark, then review it and address it. In most of the cases, it's not a big deal as you think it is. And it's just coming to terms with that and realizing when you can just shrug it off and move on to the next thing. Okay, I'll keep working on it. Shrug that. it off. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess um, two final questions. Uh, so if you could go back, so I guess mm. sort of our main target audience for this podcast is people sort of coming up through the ranks of MPH at the beginning of their um, public health careers. Mm-hmm. If you could go back when you were thinking about doing your MPH, starting to get into public health what would you say to yourself if you go back um i'm a planner from way back and i always thought that your career path is something that you had planned out and was going to be perfect as you planned it out and yeah and a lot of pressure to know what i'm doing next and what the next step will be and in hindsight now i realize that life is a lot more serendipitous and opportunities present themselves when you don't know or can plan for them and I think you know it's really important to have a bigger picture of where you're going but I think it's equally important to leave half of yourself open to opportunities and when they present say yes even if it may not be as part of this bigger picture plan that you thought you were going to follow because you would hate because of that plan to close doors that potentially could have led to bigger and better things and I think that would be my number one advice to myself because I stressed over that plan a lot (laughs) and it's not where I am now and I I love where I am now yeah that, that's actually becoming a theme. I think about three people have said that. Really? So, yeah, because I think, I think we're in science, so we're all planners. We're planners. <laughs> it's all about the plan, the method. Um, and my final question is, do you have a favourite book or uh, movie or something that you've read or that sort of inspires you or changes the way you think about the world? 
Mm. And it doesn't have to be yeah science related, but it can be. I feel be. like I should have a really deep answer <laughs> to this, but I, when it comes to movies and books, it's all about the trash. <laughs> I am a terrible reality TV tragic. Um, and when it comes to reading, because my day job is all of our day jobs, if you're in health, is reading, reading, literature, 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 report. Um, if I do read when I'm at home, it's usually a thriller or some, I'm not into sci-fi, but usually a murder mystery um, that's sitting next to my bed and I just love them easy to read. But I must say the one that I'm reading at the moment, I've tried to look outside my typical um, brain dead reading box and it's a very good book it's called we are completely beside ourselves and it came a recommendation from another franklin women member and i love this book it's it's easy to read but it's thought-provoking it has a little bit of science in there um it's very passionate it's about family and relationships and um i, I really recommend it and the other excellent thing that i've got onto is on my instagram and there's this really awesome instagram account called girls in the library and they share everyday stories of um, people's experiences of literature and how it changed their lives. Oh, that sounds great. And um, they're my other guilty pleasure on my Instagram. So Girls at the Library, I'm all about it at the moment. So Excellent. very inspiring. <laughs> and I'll definitely put that book um, on my list. Um, I don't know if everyone realises, but I do actually read the books that everyone <laughs> recommends to me. I don't just um, ask. But also in terms of the trash, I really think this is becoming a bit of a theme in the podcast. Um, first of all, that it's important to take time out and relax. But it also makes me feel better because I think when I first came to science, I felt like I didn't necessarily fit because I'm not really an intellectual. Mm. I love science, mm. but I don't, you know, watch a lot of documentaries mm. or, you know, read, you know, a lot of literature. And, I've, you know, going around talking to all different people, everyone has different likes and dislikes. Yes. And it doesn't take away from, you know, how important or, you know, how serious you are about your work. Yeah, well, sometimes watching the Kardashians is when I come up with my best ideas. <laughs> <laughs> you turn off one side of the brain and the, the other, other side one works and you're like, wow. That's great. Write it down. <laughs> Excellent. Well, this has been lovely. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening.